This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 50. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Today, we're going to cover the four ways that you can invest. Now, why is this important? Well, first, the benefit you gain from knowing this will differ depending on whether you're an investor that's just getting started or someone that's already been investing for a while. So if you're a new investor, then it's critical to know the pros and cons of the options available to you so that you can make the best decision that's right for you. In other words, you really want to look at the menu before deciding as your decision can mean the difference between retiring early and paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in unnecessary fees over your lifetime. Now, if you're a seasoned investor, then it's still good to know what the options are as maybe the option that you selected when you first started investing is no longer the best option for you. You don't know what you don't know and you definitely want to understand the pros and cons of each option so that you can evaluate which one is a better fit based on the level of service you want, how much time you want to spend keeping your portfolio optimized and how passive you actually want your investing to be. So my expert guest today is John Callos, who is a fee-for-service financial planner, which means he isn't one of those advisors that are really just there to sell you investments so they can you know, earn their bonus or earn their commission. He actually doesn't get compensated to sell any investment product, so his advice is totally unbiased, and he is instead focused exclusively on providing quality financial planning to Canadians. So John has been in the industry for over 25 years, and his lack of bias and general concern for the financial well-being of Canadians has made him one of the few financial financial planners that I actually trust and go to whenever I want an unbiased second opinion or some analysis done on my investments and financial plan. Now, if you do have some questions for John, or if you'd like to discuss potentially having him take a look at your financial situation, just like he did with my family, then you can sign up for a free consultation with him by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash John. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash John. It's totally free and there's no obligation or anything like that. And last but definitely not least, I also have a special bonus for you where for free, you can receive a one-year digital subscription to Canadian Money Saver Magazine, Canada's largest personal finance and investing magazine. So the magazine features Canada's top experts on personal finance and investing and is a great place to learn best practices and stay up to date on changes that will impact your investments and your financial situation for years to come, specifically here in Canada. Now to get all that, all you have to do is open up a free savings account with my favorite bank and the bank that I personally use, which is EQ Bank. Now, the reason that I personally use EQ Bank is that they have one of the highest interest savings rates in Canada. In fact, all the years that I've been with them, I haven't been able to find a higher interest rate anywhere. Plus, it's free to sign up and keep an account with them. So you're not paying a monthly fee like you do with many of the other banks out there. And you get five free Interact transfers every single month as well as a bonus. So because of those reasons, I've been with them ever since they launched in Canada years ago. And it's where I keep my emergency fund, my entire emergency fund and spending money as well. And just to put things in perspective, at the time of this recording, their Savings Plus account automatically gives you 2.3% interest, while the other online banks in Canada are offering a maximum of 1.25%. And if you're still banking with one of the larger banks, then you're getting less than 1%. 
In other words, by using the bank that I use, you're going to almost double the interest you get from your checking and savings accounts for free. And this is why I've been using and recommending them for years to anyone that's asked and even before they became a sponsor on the show. So to get the free account and a one-year free subscription to Canadian Money Saver magazine, just go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. That's buildwealthcanada.ca, the letter E and the letter Q. Open the free account through that link. And once you're done, forward any email that you get from EQ to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca. And I'll send you a coupon code that gets you a free one-year subscription to the magazine. So that link again is buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ to open an account. Then forward me any email from EQ to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca. And I'll email you the free coupon code for the magazine. Enjoy. Thanks for supporting the show. And now let's get into the episode. All right, John, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Cornell. Nice to be here again. Yeah, good to, good to have you back. And you had a really good idea for this episode. You, you said you wanted to come on and talk about really the four ways to invest. And I, I really like that approach because I think, especially for someone just getting started, it might seem a little bit overwhelming with all the options that are available to people. Yeah. You know, if, Even if you go to a bank and you say, hey, show me what investment offerings you have. And you know, they, will, they could literally produce numerous pages of you know different funds that they own and all of that and that they can sell you and things like that so it's easy i think to get overwhelmed and then just kind of put investing on the back burner and then meanwhile you're you know missing out on those compounding returns and all of that so uh, so i really like how you're kind of saying let's take a step back and really let, there's really four kind of key ways that we could fit the types of investing into so i thought when today let's let's talk, let's first talk about what those four things are what those four different ways are and then we can go into the, the discuss uh, the pros and cons uh, of each one and sure that, sounds yeah. good yeah yes yeah, so, yes cornell and i, I just want to say it must be daunting for someone who doesn't have any experience in investing and and is basically starting out right now there are just so many different routes and so many different investment styles types um, you know, products, solutions. It's it, it must be incredibly hard for somebody who doesn't know anything about the industry to sort of jump in there by themselves. And they, they, they basically go in blind. So as you mentioned, I, what I've sort of put it down to is the four, there's four different paths that you can take. And it's not, you know, any one individual investment. It's it's four different, let's say, solutions that you can take that that uh, that you know one might be better than the other. So this is what we're going to talk about today. As you mentioned, there's the, the four choices. So um, I'll just jump in and I'll tell you what they are right away, and then we can sort of go into them one one by one. So choice number one is 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 very typical. It's basically hire a financial planner or, or an investment advisor that uses managed products. And by managed products, I mean mutual funds um, you know, or, or other types of products that are created by the company that the planner is working for. The second choice is to hire an individual or a planner or, an, again, investment advisor that uses individual stocks and bonds to create a portfolio for you. The third one is basically a do-it-yourself style using um, do it yourself you can use pretty much anything individual stocks or bonds mutual funds exchange traded funds um, and so this is basically you're all on your own and you're and you're and you're going at it without any help and the fourth one is to use some of these let's call them newer solutions like ETFs 
um, or or some some sort of index funds by using an advisor to do that. So uh, four di- distinctly different ways of doing things, and uh, and you know what? It all boils down to you're going to be choosing or everyone is going to be choosing one of these four paths. So I think I thought it was a good idea to to talk about this today and. Uh, what I enjoy about doing shows with you, Cornelius, I really feel like we're giving a lot of value to people out there. Um, and so I'm a firm believer that if you pay for something, you you should get 10 times what you paid for it. So I really think this is putting things down very, very simply and, you know, giving people the choice of, of or at least, you know, knowing what the choices are, what the pros and cons are of each choice, because there's always pros and cons. And then, you know, people can sort of make up their own mind of what's best for them. For sure, definitely. And I mean, anybody that listens to the show knows that I'm very much a pro DIY investor, but you know, I I never dare say that that's the perfect solution for every person out there in Canada because people have different situations. They have different, you know, everyone's a little bit different, right? And so what what's what works well for me might may not work well for someone else. Uh, and so I think it's great that we're going to dive into each of these uh, paths you can take, and then you can weigh the pros and cons accordingly. And it kind of decide, you know, every listener can decide for themselves what the best one is. I think one thing I wanted to mention real quick is that when we talk, well, when you're going to talk about the four ways to invest, we're not talking about you buying a rental property or you, you know, having your own business and investing in your own business or, you know, or buying land, things like that. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're talking specifically about if you, you know, if you want to buy stocks, bonds, GICs, you know, if you're getting into those types of markets. Um, but I guess also, John, probably could be argued that if you are getting into real estate or investing in real estate directly or investing in your own business, that is, I would say, a form of do-it-yourself investing as well, right? It's very much a hands-on type of deal. Absolutely, and and many people are invested in real estate already just by owning their own home. Right. Uh, but but as you mentioned, we're, we're talking about let's call it securities that you can purchase, and and let's say the typical investments for RRSPs and TFSAs and things like that. Um, real estate obviously plays a role in everyone's uh, let's call it investment portfolio, and for some people they just love real estate, others can't stand it, um, and so again, the, I think it's it's best. To say that there are different investments out there, many of them do the same thing, but it all depends on what your style and what your comfort zone is. And so there's plenty of people that feel very comfortable with real estate and others that, that don't. So it's it's all a matter of what you feel most comfortable with. And I think that's what these four choices are going to also show to people is what it'll give them an idea of what they feel more comfortable with. Definitely, definitely. So yeah, let's uh, let's jump into these four, four ways. Okay, so... Um, Basically, well, I'll just jump into it and I'll tell you what choice number one is. And it's it's very typical and, and it's what people have used in the past, mostly to hire um, a financial planner or an investment advisor. And I'm always saying a financial planner or because there's there's basically there's uh, individuals that you can hire which are certified financial planners. I, I kind of biased towards that because they are basically trained in in every aspect of financial planning, uh, which isn't only, you know, buying RSPs and, and mutual funds and things like that. It goes, uh, uh, you know, a lot deeper into tax planning, estate planning. But anyhow, fi- you know, hiring a financial planner or an investment advisor that will use what I call managed products to invest your money. So managed products meaning mutual funds uh, and another another managed product is basically 
packages like mutual funds that have been created by the firm that the individual is working with. And they're similar, again, in, in, in style as to what mutual funds are. Um, and so basically uh, a, a broker or an advisor will usually work with two or three mutual fund companies that they feel very comfortable with and they work with their own in-house products as I mentioned and um, that's that's pretty much let's say the majority of of, in, of of financial planning is being done in this form. Now, I mentioned that there's going to be pros and cons for every solution, okay? So the pros basically when it comes to uh, working with a planner that is using mutual funds is – it's a it's it's a it's a very easy way to diversify your money in 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 one shot when you have absolutely no clue on how to do things on your own. Okay, so um, is there any other pros? Again. I typically say that these types of solutions are best for people that are really just starting out and they've just earned their first paycheck, let's say, and, they, and they've heard that they need to be investing their money because uh, the cons of this type of solution are that the fees are extremely high. And, and Canada, for a long time now, and by far, is the most expensive country to be investing in mutual funds. Um, and so for those who have heard us talk in the past, Cornell, you know, we sort of – I don't want to say I've shunned this type of investment, but it's 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 not a very cost-effective way. And you know, when I was sort of thinking about the show today, I was I was telling myself I got to find some other pros, um, <laughs> yeah. and I'm having a hard time. I mean, like I'm not kidding. It's it's uh, again, if I'm out of school and I'm and I have my first job, and you know, I walk to my bank and I deposit my money, and they tell me, you know, buy fifty dollars on a monthly basis in this mutual fund, I might say, yeah, that's a pretty good way to do it, um, and. So that's basically the first the, the first type of the first type of uh, uh, way that you could be investing your money. And John, if I can just jump in, just just yeah. a word of caution um, regarding what you just said. So for someone, let's say, yeah, they just finished, uh, you know, they just finished high school, or you know, they're going to invest their first dollar or whatever the case may be in a mutual fund. One thing to be careful of as well is deferred sales charges. So what some places will do is when you buy a mutual fund, yes, you're paying very high fees on that mutual fund, but also you will be charged deferred sales charges if you decide to, you may be charged, they're called deferred sales charges, which is basically a very large fee that you could be charged if you want to then get out of the mutual fund. And I mean, that amount can be actually in the thousands of dollars. I've, I've, I've spoken to several people who basically, you know, were trying to get out uh, after after finding out how under, you know, their funds are underperforming, they're getting charged massive fees on an ongoing basis, they want to get out. And they the company says, okay, fine, you can get out, but it's going to cost you and it's, it's it was literally uh, in the thousands of dollars. And so so you know, be if if you are going to take that route, if, if if you feel like this is a what you feel safe, just you know, to invest your first part of your first paycheck or whatever, just to get some experience, just to get some skin in the game. Um, be very very careful about that uh, because you you want to be able to take your money out once you start accumulating some money. And, you know, you're you eventually, hopefully you get to the point where you say, okay, I'm not going to do it this way anymore because the fees are just ridiculous and you're going to want to switch. So you do want to keep your, keep your options open so that you are able to switch without paying these gigantic fees. Um, that, that's yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. So I just want to kind of give that warning so that people don't just kind of jump in and, and say, oh, okay, let's just do it because I'm only 
putting in a little bit of money. Uh, be careful not to get, don't, not to sign that contract and get, uh, don't let them get their hooks in you is I guess what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and typically when you walk to your local branch, uh, your local bank, uh, and you purchase mutual funds through the branch, there aren't any deferred sales charges. You're paying a management fee on an annual basis, which is hidden and um, in the neighborhood of two, two and a half percent. But there are no deferred sales charges when you're buying a brand, a, a mutual fund through your local bank, let's say, and through the banker that's that's gonna that's gonna you know open up the account and buy the fund for you. So that's a very good point. And and you know. It brings up another issue where some people have told me, but there's there's some mutual fund managers that have outperformed the markets and stuff like that in the past, and they have a very good track record and so on. Well, what the way I uh, the way I answer that question is that how do you know if that manager is going to be there for a long time? First of all, and as you mentioned, you may be going into a fund. I remember in the '90s um, there was a there was a fund manager who was managing Canadian equity, and um, that person landed at a firm. I, I forget the name now, but they landed in a firm, and you know the next day they had commercials saying, "Hey, we have this particular fund manager who's outperformed the index many, many years, and so on." And so people, you know, advisors told their clients, "Let's pile into this because this is a very good manager," so on and so forth. And what happened is a year later, that manager went to another firm, and the people that you know purchased those funds in the option that you mentioned, deferred sales charges, are stuck now in a mutual fund where if they wanted to take out their money, they'd have to pay 5%. So that's one, you know, one negative. If somebody tells you this particular fund manager has been uh, doing extremely well and so on and so forth, well, that's the question that you have to ask yourself, how long will that fund manager be? And number two, I think it's best to to tell you this in another example. There was a fund in the, again, mid-90s that was one of the hottest funds in, in Canadian equity. It was a firm that doesn't exist any longer. And um, basically what they had shown their returns, there was lots of advertising back then showing returns of mutual funds over a one-year period, three-year, five-year, so on. Um, and they had they they were showing returns of five years of 25% per year on average, okay? And back then, the index was doing maybe 7 or 8% per year on average. And this fund was doing 25%. So everybody, I mean, people look at the newspapers, newspapers papers back then. Nobody looks at papers now, but um, they used to see these ads and they would just jump into the fund without doing too much too much research. And what happened with this particular fund is that one of those five previous years, they had bet quite a lot of money on gold and gold went through the roof at one particular point. And so basically that skewed their returns over long periods of time because they had this one year where they made like 60% in, in, in 12 months. So that sort of you know skews the returns and, and doesn't give you a full picture if this is a fund that's been consistently doing well or you know did they catch a lucky break or did they you know put their money on one thing and, and, and it went up. So these are the types of things that you have to be careful with when you're choosing mutual funds. Mm-hmm. That's great, John. I'm glad you brought those points up. And yeah, that's pretty wild. I, that the example you gave with uh, if if you make a decision to buy into a mutual fund because there's some amazing mutual fund manager that works there and he's just really really good, but that or she, and then you they leave and you want to get out and 
by that fund that that manager is now going to because you bought it primarily for that manager, but you can't because without paying basically thousands of dollars in fees to get out. That's uh yeah, that's a pretty tough situation to be in. And John, just just to clarify regarding the previous point with the deferred sales charges. So yeah, both both of the times that I've dealt with those uh, just for uh, with other people, it, they were charged these deferred sales charges because they basically I guess they went through they didn't go directly to the bank. It was through right. uh, like an agent right of uh, representing. Both of the times it was through an insurance company, an agent representing that would sell investment products on behalf of the insurance company. So like segregated funds, things like that. Um, so is that kind of the distinction just because you've actually worked in the banking industry. So you're saying if you go directly to a bank, they're not going to do the for sales charges typically, although you should still, I guess, make sure just as part of your due diligence. That's right. Okay. But it's yeah. usually the, if, if it's, if you're doing it kind of through a sort of a third party or something like that, then you might, that's when the charges come in. Would that be fair yeah, to say? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll explain it like this. Sure. As you mentioned, if you go through an insurance company, you're going to have deferred sales charges. If you go through a, an, an investment advisor that works for the brokerage firm of a bank, and, and as an example, there's Bank of Montreal and there's BMO Nesbitt Burns. So Nesbitt Burns is owned by the Bank of Montreal. Uh, Nesbitt Burns uh, advisors have these deferred sales charges when they sell mutual funds to you. So an insurance company, a brokerage firm that's owned by a bank, an independent firm as well that that deals in money management but is not affiliated with a bank, independent firms, um, and there's some big names out there, uh, typically also sell their own managed products. Let's call it their own mutual funds, but they also sell third-party mutual funds where all these deferred sales charges exist. So um, basically, the only place where you're not going to get any deferred sales charge is through your branch or if you go through the discount broker of your branch. So every bank has their full service broker, every bank has their discount broker. So if you're gonna buy mutual funds, third party mutual funds, you know, well-known names out there uh, through a discount broker, you're not gonna pay any deferred sales charges, but you're always paying the annual management fees, which is called management expense ratios, which them by themselves are jailhouse robbery. Like again, two to two and a half percent for a well-balanced type of investment. So you're getting creamed twice, whether you're not paying, you know, deferred sales charges. And let me just quickly explain again, uh, deferred sales charge basically means you buy it this year. And if you sell it within the next five years, you're going to get dinged with a fee. So on top of that, there's the management expense ratios that you have to be careful about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, then you get into these situations where, and I, I've, I've spoken to people that have gone in these really difficult situations where, you know, they, they bought these funds they want to get out because the fees by themselves are ridiculous and then but they they're told well okay but if you get out we're going to charge you x thousand dollars in fees and so now they're in this really tough spot where they're thinking okay well so should i just because what happens uh, just for anybody who doesn't know eventually those deferred sales charges disappear so if you hold it long enough i believe it's five years you said right john anywhere between five and seven years. five and seven yeah so if you hold yeah. it for that time then you no longer pay that deferred sales charges right so it varies from uh, mutual fund to mutual fund right john Correct. Uh, but always remember that you are paying the annual management fee. Still, yeah. And those yeah. are incredibly high to begin with. So what I'm what I do with clients that come with me that that have you know third party mutual funds or, or again mutual funds with deferred sales charges, I like to do a, a a cost benefit analysis. And if we see that you know their fund is charging them two and a half percent a year, and on top of that they have to sell, you know they would they would have to pay if, to, to get out. What I like saying is let's compare the two and a half percent that you're paying now versus another fund. And I, again, I'm biased towards exchange traded funds. And if you're 
you're saving 2% a year on the annual fees, let's look at where the break-even point is. In other words, say if you sold today, your deferred sales charges would be $5,000. But you know what? You're paying $2,000 on an annual basis whether you're keeping it or, you know, if you're keeping the fund. So does it make sense to sell the fund and get hit by the charges so you can get into another fund that, you know, has very, very low fees? And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. If a client is is later on in the years where, let's say, the deferred sales charge have dropped to, um, you know, 2% or 1%, at that point, maybe it makes sense. But it's very difficult and it's very unfortunate for clients who haven't been explained that they have these fees. And you know what, Cornell, it's unfortunate, but rarely do clients know about these fees and it it's anyhow it's just it's just terrible and there's so many people that are saying what do you mean there's a fee if i want to get out they've never been explained right they've never had a proper explanation i assume the company had to tell them that when they signed but i assume it was on page you know 30 or something at the bottom of the contract 30 not 30 look you you get a you get an you get a prospectus just that word itself is scary, which is like 200 pages that it describes. And this is when you buy the fund by law, they have to give you the prospectus. Um, and as you mentioned, it's buried somewhere in there. And, um, you know, the laws, Canadian laws have started becoming a little bit more strict as to, you know, what type of information somebody needs to get before they purchase something and, and what they have to be told. But that doesn't always, it doesn't always pan out. Uh, needless to say, I, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing people all the time that tell me, what are you talking about deferred? sales charge what's this dsc that people talk about so it's something else we got to make it extremely clear to everyone that you need just asking an advisor or a representative what the fees are doesn't usually get you an answer you really have to dig in and if anything if if people want to find out more i'll give you the easiest way to do this just google deferred sales charges and management expense ratios those are the two types of fees that you have to be concerned with when you're purchasing mutual funds mm-hmm. for sure so john when you do that kind of analysis for your clients where they say okay we have x thousand right now in mutual funds we want to get out but and do it let's let's do let's say they want to do you know low cost broad market index ETFs, right? So something just they're going to hold the S&P TSX in Canada. They're going to hold, let's say, S&P 500 US, you know, just very kind of low cost ETFs, you know, things that you and I have talked about before on the show. Um, So just to make sure I understand the the sort of analysis you do when deciding whether they should sell or wait until the deferred sales charges disappear. So you basically, so at that point, do you just assume that, okay, let's assume that this fund basically matches the index, is that kind of the assumption you make? And then you That's say, right. okay, Absolutely. yeah, okay. And then you say, okay, the first sales charges is, let's say, $3,000, but you're paying 2.5% on whatever, how much you bought of that fund. And then you just basically compare those two and say, okay, um, so for example, after two years, will am, am I now basically positive now by switching out or am I or, or is it going to take me you know five years to get, you know, to get back into sort of the break-even territory? And so maybe if I only have, you know, a couple of years left on the mutual fund, maybe it makes sense to hold it. Is, is that the kind of analysis you do? Y- yes, it is. And you, okay. you know what? At a certain point, um, you do sort of, there is a point where you say, whether I keep the fund and pay the high management fees or I sell the fund, pay the deferred sales charge, and now I'm getting into a fund that has very little management fees, right. there's always a point where, where you say like, 
like I've told clients, in about two and a half years, you you will have broken even. So whether you keep it now or if you sell now and you go into a low pain, low fee fund, in two years you will have you will be where you would have been if you kept the fund. Right. So, so it usually makes sense to sell it, okay. And if you look at, and if you again Google the 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 phrase, should I sell my deferred sales charge funds? There's lots of articles that that are for selling it, and it does make sense. On the other hand, if I'm telling a client that they're going to pay fifteen thousand dollars, that's a hard pill to swallow. Whether I'm telling them that you know two years from now it will have been the same thing, whether you're you know you, whether you would have kept it or you would have sold it, it's still a hard pill to oh, say sure. I'm going to get hit by fifteen thousand dollars worth of fees. So typically, the funds, um, and then a couple of years later we'll look at it and see where the fees are, and 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 at that point we'll make a decision. But I'm telling you, I mean, if I had to make a decision and somebody's telling me it's going to cost you $15,000 to get out of investment, I'd say, oh, my goodness. I mean, that's crazy. No matter what kind of logic I'm, I'm, I'll am i show someone, it's still a very hard pill to swallow. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's that's a car, right? <laughs> and it's, and it's an expense that they never knew about that they would have to pay, right? So it's this thing that just comes out of left field or whatever that baseball expression is. I don't know. I'm not it's a baseball player. Field. It's left field. Yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it comes this fee and you're like, oh, now I have to pay that, that just to optimize my investments. It's, uh, yeah. And it's just, it's just, it's almost a crime. I mean, it's almost, it's crime. It's if you're not telling people what they're paying. So that's the unfortunate aspect of our industry. Uh, but I mean, we have to live through that and we have to, you know, be very careful when we make decisions about how and with who we are investing our money. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. All right. Well, thanks for clarifying, uh, clarifying that, John. Yeah. Sorry, I, I got a sidetracked a bit with this, but I just, yeah, I, I've I've helped people with that before and I just wanted to gauge you, the thought process you go through when you do that same kind of analysis. And it looks like yep. our, we, we do it pretty much the same way. So, uh, yeah. okay. I just, yeah, I just thought it would be interesting to pick your brain to right see on. if, if we, if we're kind of uh, on the same, uh, on the same page. Um, yeah. All right, so I'll stop interrupting. Let's uh, let's <laughs> let's keep going here. <laughs> all right, choice number two. So choice number two is is using again a financial planner or an investment advisor, stockbroker, whatever you want to call them, and that individual is using individual stocks, individual bonds to create a portfolio for you. Now, the pros when it comes to that is if someone has significant amount of money, there's 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 strategies that you can use to so, from a tax planning point of view there are strategies that you can use with individual stocks that that can help you uh, either reduce your taxes or pay little taxes on on any gains that these stocks have made so that that's one of the bigger um, positives when it comes to you know having individual securities so uh, but that really makes sense if you have you know many hundreds of thousands of dollars or even in the millions of dollars um you know typically people that have several million dollars they do have a poor at least a portion of their portfolio where they have individual stocks because again uh, from a tax planning point of view it does make sense for 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 the these types of uh, these types of investors now what what makes it difficult is that these types of advisors are you know very few and 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 far between right now because the whole industry has gone the route of the managed money um, model, let's say. And one reason why they've taken that route, this wasn't the case 20 years ago or 30 years ago, because 
first of all, these managed products didn't exist or nearly as ma as many as there are now. They were very, very few. And 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 a stockbroker was a stockbroker. And uh, and and again, back in those days, there was a lot of gambling going on. So a stockbroker was, you know, let's buy this so we can double our money. But you know, it's it. There are advisors out there that'll that'll choose the you know the big, uh, well-known companies like the Bell Canadas and and the the banks, for example, um, Microsoft and all these things. Um, so, but there, there's not a lot of people that do that right now because the money is in managed products and investment firms. Uh, when I was at an investment firm in the late '90s, that's when things really started, you know, going towards managed money. And I was told on a regular basis, managed money is where to be because a) you're making more money, b) you're not spending your time trying to find stocks, analyzing stocks, and figuring things out when you could be spending money. You, you could you could be spending your time finding more clients. So. So that's how that's how that route has gone. Basically, there are a few people out there. I know someone that I work with um, closely, um, where if I find a client that that's a, a suitable solution for them, I'll recommend them. To, this individual has a process that he follows and 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 has the returns to you know in the historical returns, very long returns that have been that have been quite that have been quite good. So um, they do exist, but they're extremely hard to find. And typically you're not going to, you know, you're not going to find, it's going to be very difficult to find somebody like that. So and, that's the negative of that aspect. And John, the, regarding the, the positive you mentioned with this with the approach you mentioned about because they're picking individual stocks, individual bonds, I assume there when you're talking about the benefit, you're referring to tax loss selling when it comes to the stocks. Is that that's right. what you're that's right. Okay. And so yeah. it's probably worth mentioning or just adding to as well that that's, Really, only if you're holding investments in a non-registered account, because you can't. Exactly. Good point. Yeah, so you, because you, you can't do tax loss selling in an RRSP or a TFSA, and so most people, most Canadians, they don't have their RRSP and TFSA maxed out. And as a general rule, and I mean, there, there is there, there can be exceptions, but as a general rule, you typically focus on maxing out your TFSA and RRSP first before you start putting investments in taxable accounts, also known as non-registered accounts, or if, like you're with Quest Trading, you know, they call it margin accounts. So that's the so you know that that benefit will really only the whole tax loss selling benefit will really only help you if you have money in a non-registered account and typically you should not have money in a non-registered account as a general as a general rule uh, you know with some exceptions unless your RRSP and TFSA are maxed out would that be fair to say John yeah, that's right. And, and you're, you're, I'm glad you, you've pointed out a couple of times to say as a general rule, okay? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, certainly, certainly, um, you shouldn't have any money outside, non registered money. So, any money outside RSPs, if you haven't maxed out your TFSA, that's for sure. So, you shouldn't have $10,000 sitting around in an investment account if your TFSA has nothing in it. So, that's, that's, right. that's very, you know, it's very obvious. On the other hand, I'll say this there are cases. Um, where it's not such a good idea to max out your RSP. And right. I, if I have any of my clients that are listening to me right now, they're probably smiling because certainly RSPs are good for the majority of people out there. There are cases, though, where you're going to be in a position where you'll be saving some taxes doing an R an RRSP right now, but in the future, when you have to withdraw your money, you might be in a higher tax bracket. So we're talking about individuals that have, you know, 
a lot of money, all right? So, so many hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I, I basically, when I do a financial plan, I show, I'm able to show them whether it's worth it or not putting more money into a an RRSP. For business owners, generally speaking, uh, successful business owners who have, you know, who have who are saving you know a lot of money um i typically say no to rrsps at a certain point you know if, if if they've put money in it already i'll say maybe it's time to stop because for such and such reason for example you could be in a higher tax bracket when the government forces you to withdraw money from your rsp number one number two rsps you do lose control of that money you know if you need if you if you will ever need it in the future there's a little bit of a loss of control. So there are, as I mentioned, so let me just wrap by saying, generally speaking, RSPs are good. Specifically, though, you want to make sure that, that your advisor is telling you whether it's worth it for your particular situation or not. For sure. For sure. Yeah, I mean that's a yeah, and I mean I I, that's why I say that generally because I know, for example, when we uh, did the whole retirement thing. So like I like I'm semi retired now, but my wife is, is fully retired. So because she's fully retired, we are she still has some RRSP contribution left. But when we hit that milestone, from a tax perspective, it didn't make sense to pump money into her RRSP because yeah. she has no income, right? So we would much rather. I mean, she definitely has a fair bit in her RRSP from her working uh, you know years, right? But right. Now that she doesn't work anymore, um, I shouldn't say not work. Cause she, she gets mad when I say that because she, she takes care of the kids, right? So she's like, what do you mean I don't work? But <laughs> 24 hours a day I work, Cortez. So What's the matter with Exactly. So I have to be very careful. But because she doesn't have a, you know, quote, you know, like an employer, let, let's call it, yeah. right? <laughs> Have to be politically correct here, John. Yeah, yeah, be careful. Be <laughs> or I'm going to be sleeping on the couch. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But I mean, so so that's kind of a real life example, right? Where okay, so she's no, she's now retired. She doesn't have to. She, she you know, she doesn't have a typical job anymore. And so in her case, when we have some extra money to invest, and like on my end, I'm like all my RSPTFSAs are maxed out. But on her end, because she's fully not uh, not working uh, in that way, it, I, we, we if you have money to invest in her account we would rather put it into a non-registered because our tfsa is maxed out we would rather put it into our non-registered instead of our rsp because yeah because it's a non-registered i mean it's going to generate some dividend income which we can use for you know spending or whatever it's very accessible right um and yeah and it's 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 not kind of locked in into an rsp right where if you want to take it out you get ding the withholding tax and then you have that whole thing to deal with right if anything, I mean, if her income is very low, the, the there's an argument of, of having to you know take out money from the RSP. Actually, mm-hmm. the best time right. to take money out of an RSP is when you have very very low income. Right. If you if you put money in your RSP five years ago and you were in a high tax bracket, and today you find yourself unemployed for whatever reason and you're not making any income, now is the best time to pull out the money from the RSP. Right. That's that's win win. I mean, without you know without even questioning. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Oh, one. So, so needless oh, to say, <laughs> yeah. right, needless to say, I mean, again, maybe getting off topic a little bit. Um, every situation is different, so every situation brings a unique solution. Um, so, you know, putting in money in your RSP, withdrawing money from your RSP, we we need to look at the overall solution, the over where you know where your income is coming from, when your income is coming, so on and so forth, before we make any decision as to. As to you know, pulling out money or putting in money to your RSP. For sure, for sure. But yeah, like I do say generally, because typically uh, a couple in Canada both will be you know the two adults, right? Typically they both work, right? And so they both are making money. So an RSP 
can can make a lot of sense to help lower their taxable income. And then, of course, TFSA makes sense as well. So, um, yeah, yeah. Okay, that sounds good. (laughs) Just have to add these little... That's a funny thing. Oh, it's funny, I guess. But that's the interesting thing about this this whole kind of world that you and I are in, right? In, yeah. in that there's always, there's usually the general rules, but then oftentimes there are certain exceptions depending on your financial situation, right? Because everyone's a little bit different and that could skew the, the, your, the optimal solution may be different depending on the variables that are very specific to you, um, which is why I like the fee-for-service planners so much like yourself because you can advise people in that kind of a way and make things custom for them instead of people just going with these kind of general rules of thumb which you exactly. know might work 80% of the time but what if you're part of that 20% where it doesn't work for you because you have a special situation so um, that's right that's yeah. right okay let's move on choice number three and now this is the do-it-yourself choice okay and it, basically you're on your own and you're not using the services of anyone you're using the services perhaps of a discount broker or you're using the services of 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 firms that you can buy exchange-traded funds. Um, And we're going to talk about a couple of these solutions, but basically you're on your own. Now, um, what are the pros when it comes to that is is simply fees. Um, When you're looking at exchange-traded funds, I mean, I don't even talk about those fees anymore because they're negligible. I mean, we're talking 0.05%, and I think... That, that's five basis points, okay? And I think there's a couple of solutions that are at 0.03% now. There are firms where they won't even charge you to buy an ETF. ETFs are bought like stocks, okay? So they trade on the stock exchange. So uh, the way you'd buy you know, 100 shares of Bill Canada, you'd buy 100 shares of any ETF that's out there. And there are firms out there now that are not even charging you to buy uh, to buy exchange traded funds, so you're basically paying next to zero, um, and it's hard to beat that when it comes when it comes to fees. Okay, um, and so the different solutions are I, I've named a few firms that I work with, like Wealth Simple and Nest Wealth, and and stuff like that. I know you came you 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 actually opened up my eyes to another solution from a company called Vanguard, where they have uh, an exchange traded fund. Basically, you're buying one fund and you're taking care of all of your needs when it comes to diversification because typically we say, right, you should – again, I'm using the word typically again. Right. <laughs> um, you should you, you should have a balance between safety and growth and depending on your age and depending on your risk tolerance, you should be either more aggressive or less aggressive. Well, Vanguard has these solutions now where – in one exchange-traded fund, you can have diversified a diversified portfolio from from very conservative to moderate to aggressive. So you're you're really only buying one solution, one stock, let's call it, one ETF that that is that covers the range of conservative to aggressive. So that's quite interesting and quite easy, very cost-efficient. That's for sure. I think the fees run in the about 20 basis points or so, if I'm not mistaken, Cornell. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, it's at, yeah. Uh, let's see here. Management fee is 0.22% of a percent. Yep. And the MER is not there. They're pretty new, so they don't have an official MER yet. Okay. Um, so basically, yeah, it's going to be slightly over 0.22%. 
Yeah, which is which is still very very cheap, and you, you know you're getting all your solutions with one transaction. And what's important about that is you don't have to rebalance on a regular basis. The ETF is doing that on its own. So, and I mentioned rebalance, and I have to uh, let me mention it again. Rebalancing your portfolio is so important. It's it's one of the biggest steps that need to be taken, and that's often missed by advisors and investors. Um, and and I'll give a very quick example. Let's say you're someone with a hundred thousand dollars, and for to, to keep numbers simple, you, you, we we decide that you should have fifty percent in safety and fifty percent in equity. Well, if you've been an investor over the past five years, your fifty percent in equity has done quite well. All right, maybe not so much in Canada, but outside of Canada, you've done quite well. So. Is there's a very good chance right now that you, the the equity portion of your portfolio is at seventy percent or seventy five percent, and your fixed income, your safety is very low. So right now you find yourself in a position that if the markets change, you're not going to feel comfortable because you have a lot of exposure to equities. And when we first sat down, let's say we decided from a volatility point of view and how you feel about you know a stock moves uh, or or down markets that you should be in a 50-50. All of a sudden, you'll find yourself at a 75%, 25%, and now you're taking too much risk. You're not comfortable with that risk without even knowing it. So it's a good idea to rebalance your portfolio every so often. So sell some of that equity that's gone up. So here we go. We're we're selling when the markets are high, and putting it into safety. And if the market Markets go down and you find yourself with only 30% in equity now because the markets have really tanked, take some of your safety and buy the markets. So you're buying when the markets are low. The bottom line is you need to be balanced, and that's what these ETFs do. They keep you balanced. So it's quite a quite a decent solution for for someone who wants to make their purchase and forget about it, you know? For sure, for sure. Yeah, I, you're talking about rebalancing, and I'm thinking I have to plug my course. I have to plug my course. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's what you're that's what you're uh, mentioning in your course, right? Like the that's rebalancing right. and how important it is. Um, so it's it's a very good point. Now, so those are the pros, okay, of of. Um, of do-it-yourselfers, there are cons though, and I'll tell you what they are. And it's quite interesting, and and some people have already felt this. But there's been lots of studies that have been done over many, many years, and uh, there are some reputable firms out there that have that have gone through these studies, um, and it basically shows that typically, generally speaking, investors on their own are not doing well. So, and there's a few reasons for that. So, historically, investors, the average person that's doing things on their own has earned about 3% less than what the indices have done in the past over short periods of time and over long periods of time. There's a firm called Dalbar. I'm not sure if you've if you've heard this firm. Uh, basically, they're, they're like an industry watchdog where they – uh, they're independent and they sort of – they look at different investment firms and financial planners. This is across the states if I'm not mistaken and I think it's only in the states. But anyhow, they look at you know the different players out there and they, they rank them. They make sure they're doing things properly and so they've done studies um, and, and they've shown that um, – 
uh, looking at the S&P 500 versus the average investor, the do-it-yourself investor, over a 10-year period, the do-it-yourself investor, I have this number somewhere, I think they've earned on average about 2.6%, and over a 20-year period, it's 2.5%. Over a 30-year period, the return that the average investor has made when they, when they are fully in equities is 1.9%. So you're saying, so how can that be? Well, there's something called investment behavior, right? So people will do irrational things when the markets are high. They'll do irrational things when the markets are very low. And so that that's something that as a do-it-yourselfer, you have to monitor on your own and you have to make sure that you're not making decisions based on emotions and, 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 and stuff like that. So um, it's it's really something to say. And and. People these days that have been in the markets for the past, let's say over the past 10 years, the truth is we haven't really seen a bear market since 2009. Um, we had we had a little period this year at the beginning of the year where the markets actually went into correction mode. They were down by more than 10% at a certain point, and it barely made the news because a couple of days later, they were right back up there. So the, the newer investor – Someone who hasn't had more than 10 years experience hasn't really felt a negative market. So they don't know how they would react if they saw their $200,000 go down to 140. This is where the value of advice comes into play. And needless to say, some people will just sit on it and, and you know, they might buy more when the markets are down, which is great. It's on the other hand, when your money has gone down by 50%, your mind is doing some irrational things, let's say. And, and and it is scary when you're hearing, you know, on the news. If you remember, Cornell, you were around in 2008 when the sky was falling and when, you know, people were saying this, but this time it's different. And people were doing all sorts of crazy things. Um, those were scary days. And it's hard to navigate those types of periods on your own. So that's the, the cons of on your own, especially for people who haven't been through nasty markets, that's where it hurts. So that's my comment as far as um, choice number three is good points, definitely, uh, when it comes to fees, and that's the best way to go. On the other hand, you have to be very careful when you're doing things on your own in negative markets. Mm-hmm. All right. I hope you enjoyed part one of the episode with John. If you have any questions for John, you can sign up for a free consultation with him at buildwealthcanada.ca slash John. Don't forget to get that free one-year subscription to Canadian Money Saver Magazine and double that interest rate that you're currently getting in your checking and savings accounts by signing up for free to my favorite bank that I've been using for years over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. Once you do that, forward me any email that EQ sends you over to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca and I'll send you the coupon code that gets you a free one-year subscription to Canadian Money Saver magazine. You'll also get that extra perk of five free Interact e-transfers every month and you'll know that you're getting one of the highest interest rates in Canada on your checking and savings account. That link again to learn more and sign up for free is buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. Thank you sincerely for using that link to support the show. It's a huge help. There is no cost to you. And enjoy the extra money and the free subscription that you'll get through EQ Bank and Canadian Money Saver Magazine. All right, have a great week and talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.